we many of the terms that we use to describe the students that we work with are uh, marginal, racially marginalized, um, low-income students often. So we wanted to always find the ways that we could center students and the assets that they bring into the classroom and sort of reject some of the deficit-based terms that have been put onto students um, and sort of then define them and define the kind of opportunities that are offered to them or, or not offered to them. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sofronis. And before we get started with this week's episode, I just want to say thank you on behalf of everyone at Elevation. It has been a difficult transition year for many with uh, shortages of staff lots of transitions, and just the challenges of bringing students back into school. We see you, we appreciate you, and we're here to support you. Thank you, as always, for the great work that you're doing. On this episode of Highest Aspirations, what's in a name, or in this case, a label? Why do many prefer the term emergent bilingual over terminology like English learner, limited English proficient, multilingual learner, or the many other names that we have for the students we serve? On the 40th anniversary year of the Castaneda versus Picard case, what progress have we made and what do we still need to do to ensure the civil rights for our multilingual learners? How might a name or title change lead to significant changes in how we perceive and educate our multilingual learners? In short, names and labels matter, and we discuss these questions and more with Araceli Garcia. Araceli grew up on the south side of San Antonio and is the daughter and granddaughter of Mexican immigrants. She is the first person in her family to attend college, and her passion for immigrants' rights stems from seeing her family and community insist on dignity while struggling to navigate their immigration and socioeconomic status. A graduate of Stanford University, Araceli has received several awards for her academic excellence and community service, including the John Gardner Fellowship for Public Service, Newman Civic Fellow Award, and Stanford's Porras Award for Visionary Leadership. Most recently, Araceli served as an inaugural education policy fellow with IDRA, where she focused on rights of emergent bilingual and immigrant students. Araceli graduated from Stanford with a bachelor's degree in Chicano Latinx studies and a minor in education. Currently, she is pursuing a law degree at the University of Texas at Austin School of Law, where she was named an equal justice scholar and plans to continue serving low-income and racially marginalized communities. While we do spend some time talking about the naming conventions of the students we serve, this episode is representative of many larger issues in the world of advocacy, and Araceli really brings these forward in this episode. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Araceli Garcia, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, you know, it was, it was a really interesting time that I read uh, your article, um, which is called Words Matter, the Case for Switching to Emergent Bilingual. We'll link to that. Um, because my colleagues and I, as, like, as I had read it, were literally talking about, we're having conversations about labels um, for students, particularly for emergent bilinguals, multilingual learners, English learners, all the other millions of terms that people use for that group of students. Um, and I was really intrigued by the article. In fact, the president of our company, um, Teddy Rice, shared it with me and we had a conversation about it. So I want to start there because it inspired us to chat about it. I imagine it would likely inspire others as well. So what 
what compelled you to write the article? First of all, what, what was it about? Um, and then, you know, what, what compelled you to, uh, to write it and share it with the world? Yeah, so as you mentioned, there are a maraud of terms that are used across the country and even in my home state of Texas, which is where um, a lot of the work that I've been doing has been focused. Um, but the sort of conversations that you and your colleagues were having were the same conversations that we were having at the organization that I'm an education policy fellow at currently, um, the Intercultural Development Research Association, uh, IDRA. And so we were talking about um, always, we, many of the terms that we use to describe the students that we work with who are uh, marginal, racially marginalized, um, low income students often so we wanted to always find the ways that we could center students and the assets that they bring into the classroom and sort of reject some of the deficit-based terms that have been put onto students um, and sort of then define them and define the kind of opportunities that are offered to them or, or not offered to them. So we um, discussed this and I brought up the fact with within my organization at first about like, I noticed that we still use the term English learner um, and I have learned um, in my undergraduate studies that there are better terms out there, for example, emergent bilingual students. Um, so why don't we change to that label? And the organization was super receptive. Um, they were excited to make this change and to really be trailblazers in, in changing this terminology, especially in a state like Texas. Um, so a lot of our legislative work also uh, centered on this change. And, and of course, we know that this isn't a, a Band-Aid that will fix the solution. There's many issues um, that come up uh, as it pertains to emergent bilingual students, but we believe this is a really good first step in changing public perception and, and our own internalized perceptions of what English learners are capable of, what kind of skills they bring into the classroom and what they can achieve. Yeah, I love the connection there between what was happening at IDRA, your organization, and Elevation Hours. I mean, it was just, I, and I, it, again, it got me to think that I'm sure these conversations are happening in lots of other places as well. And in fact, there have already been, you know, some changes in some places. And I know a lot of school districts are, are switching over. But one thing that you mentioned that I think is really interesting is you talked about um, how the, you know, we want to have a term that uh, that helps reflect the opportunities and assets that are available to the students themselves, but or and I would also mention that you know take using a term that is more asset based and less deficit based also allows um, I think teachers who maybe have not worked with this demographic of students before to realize all the assets that they bring to the table and diversify their classes and just make them more interesting as well. Right, definitely, and and that's something that so I mean I can speak especially from the place where Texas is at because that's where. Um, we were working on legislative policy. That's the students we were working with, the families we were working with. And many, even education advocates themselves and teachers would tell us that they still heard their colleagues referring to uh, emergent bilingual students as LEPs, mm. uh, as their little LEPs was the exact phrase that was yep. used. Um, and that was from someone who was describing what they heard. They were someone who was with the Texas Education Agency, and that's what they heard regularly from teachers in the classroom as they refer to those students. And LEP, of course, stands for Limited English Proficient, which up until recently, I guess currently, and will be changing on September 1st, um, was what was down in the, in, the, in the law for how these students are, are to be labeled by our teachers. And so, of course, we, we sort of know that when we label students as limited anything, um, rather than, you know, emerging bilingual students, that we're limiting also the opportunities and what we believe that they're capable of, even just in those simple language terms. 
Yeah. I mean, you could probably like, I've heard expressions like that before in many districts that I've worked with as a sort of a, you know, a trainer and working front and in frontline with, with districts that are working with emergent bilinguals or multilingual learners, which is the term that we've kind of been shifting to. Um, I, and, and I, and I hear those kinds of expressions those kind of cute little expressions, like little laps, the one that you mentioned, um, right. and they almost strike me as I, I, I don't, I don't like think teachers are necessarily trying to sort of, um, do any harm to those students, but it's almost like a microaggression. You know what I mean? We're like, you're kind of not really educated and what the terms mean and you've been using it forever and ever and shifting over is difficult. Um, so that's kind of like leads me to my next question and feel free to respond to what I just said as well. But, but I want to kind of start from the, from the top and, and work our way down. H- have you seen, I mean, there's one in five students, I think, um, in Texas are, are emerging bilinguals or multilingual learners. That is about one in 10 in the country. Highest growing demographic as, as, as most of us know based on kind of what I said about these teachers and educators who are using these terms, like you just mentioned, do you see that there is an appetite for this change uh, past your organization and maybe mine? And and how have you gone about sort of making your case? Yeah, definitely. I think um, we were actually very surprised at IDRA that there sort of was this appetite for changing this terminology. We found that even people who might be reluctant or organizations that might have been reluctant in the past, for example, like the Texas Education Agency, um, actually wanted and was on board and helped us craft and figure out how they on the back end were going to ensure that this language change did not change anything legally, any of the protections and sort of funding that's guaranteed to these students legally, but also um, on their side of things, on reporting and gathering data, we still want to make sure we have good and accurate data that reflects students um, who we're talking about exactly. Right. So we had to make sure that they were also on board and we're going to be um, supportive of that because if they testify in a hearing that they don't love this change, uh, it can really complicate that and, and legislators are really paying attention to that. So they were actually, uh, and there has recently been a shift in, in the TEA's sort of makeup of who's in charge over there. And so that was helpful for us because there was an appetite for change. Some folks at the Texas Education Agency were actually hoping it might come from a federal place. Now that we have a new um, administration in place, uh, they thought that might be happening federally, but we were actually able to make it happen at the state level. Um, So we found actually that many legislators on both sides um, of the aisle actually were able to say that they recognize the importance of labels that especially for children, it matters how we talk to them, the words we use to describe them matter, um, not just for them, but also for teachers and how teachers see them for how they see themselves. And so we were a little bit taken aback by that, um, but it was definitely in a positive way. Yeah, that's great. I mean, and and aside from, uh, I think the answer that you just gave, which is a positive one, which is that this this appetite does seem to exist even among those who maybe aren't as educated as as others in this uh, area. You also um, talked about how, I mean, there's just, you just really have to get in the weeds with the work you're doing because changing a term, as you mentioned, could have uh, implications that wouldn't be good um, for these students and the educators who serve them. So uh, that being said, I just really appreciate the work that you did and making sure that you um, really kind of uh, covered all your bases because I'm sure that there's a lot that, that goes into it. And the last time we talked, you said you were really proud of it and I totally understand why and you should be. I'm really proud of, of sort of pushing that language to, to emergent bilingual 
But you also said, and I, I really applaud you for this, that there's much more work to be done, um, specifically in implementation and raising awareness um, and this whole idea of taking an asset-based approach, which I feel like we mention in almost every single episode that we have, no matter who we're, we're chatting with. Mm-hmm. So you, you kind of go into this a little bit, but I'd love for you to specifically talk about um, how does a name change help sort of accelerate all that work that I just talked about? And I guess maybe more importantly, what still needs to be done at a policy level so we can make lasting changes that we want. Definitely. I think that's really important. And, and we are the first at IDRA to make sure that we we don't want to give folks more credit than what actually happened. And what happened is that we transitioned to asset-based language. What did not happen was an increase in funding. Uh, other things that didn't happen were you know, concrete laws to address the chronic bilingual educator shortage in Texas. Yep. I know that's not just a Texas-specific issue, but they're nationwide issues that we really have to contend with before we can really say that we're providing an, an access to an equitable and excellent education for all students, including emergent bilingual students. Um, and so this, this law that we were able to pass, as you mentioned, which will be a, become effective in Texas on September 1st of this year. Soon. Uh, Yes, soon. Actually, by the time people listen to this, it may have already it may have already happened. So right around that time. Great. Awesome. And so the the part of it that you mentioned that we have to work on now on the back end, which we kind of describe as the unsexy work that goes into (laughs) policymaking is the implementation uh, awareness and, and making sure that folks are really not just subbing out LEP for EB, right, or EL for EB but that we're really engaging in a statewide campaign. It'd be great to make it a nationwide campaign, Um, but for the purposes of this law, uh, right now what we've been able to achieve with this law is a statewide campaign that IDRA is gonna work on with TEA and other stakeholders. Um, And as part of that, we've also, this was just one law out of uh, four laws that were actually passed in Texas, one of them being a statewide strategic plan for Texas. Uh, that deals with immer- with bilingual education. And so that law set up benchmarks, meaningful benchmarks and timelines uh, were need to be set up for how many bilingual educators we're gonna have in the state, how many students are gonna graduate bilingual and biliterate, how many more dual language programs are we going to make available and by what year. And so this, this is what is exciting to us about this change is that it's being accompanied by some other laws that are hopefully gonna give it some teeth, hopefully gonna reinvigorate um, folks' excitement around bilingual education and bilingualism and biliteracy in general. Um, so we're working with families, grassroots families. IDRA does everything from working with grassroots um, families to the policy making and the policy arena. So we have already let our families know who were, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that they were critical in getting these laws passed. And so we've already let them know that there are eyes and ears and of course, they can let us know and should let us know uh, if they feel that they, their districts are not valuing their students um, and also if they're not putting in, in place these changes that are required by law um, and encouraging more uh, education in the district around why bilingualism is so important. So those are parts of how we think that this is going to hopefully take effect. It's like we really want to start. Now, we've done sort of the top-down approach where we change mm-hmm. the law mm-hmm. in it, which is often where we get a lot of pushback from educators, actually, where they say, well, we would want to transition to something better, but for the sake of not creating confusion, um, we can't use something that's not already in the law. So right. we're sort of taking out that barrier, and now we're working, of course, with families and students to make and, and 
and district leaders to make sure that they um, do change this, this term, but also change their approach and make it an asset-based one. Yeah, you just kind of answered the question I had maybe 30 seconds ago about sort of, you know, you had the top down approach, but then you also talked about, you know, working with families and the grassroots approach, you're coming at it from both, both angles, really strategically, um, but but not so strategically that you're limiting yourself to uh, only the, you know, that the primary decision makers, which I think is often a mistake that is made. And then, as you said, there's pushback. And I understand having been a teacher for a long time, you know, policy change, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, uh, when I was on the ground working with students was um, not something that really made me too excited or <laughs> frankly affected me mostly. It was mostly, well, you know, this is changing, but just wait a year and it'll change again. But when you have that happening and then you have sort of a grassroots approach um, with with families and school districts uh, in the work, then then things can change and can accelerate. So that's that's great. And then the other thing, as you were speaking, is um, you know, I you you mentioned there's only this. You're working in Texas right now, but when I think of um, you know multilingual learners, emergent bilinguals, um, and when I think of policy, and when I think of you know states and areas where um, you know there are obviously large demographics of those students, and and plans and strategies and, and everything have been and policies have been in place for a long time. I think of California, I think of Texas, I think of Florida. Those are the first three states that come to mind. And so the only reason that I mentioned that, and I know that obviously there's, there's, there's this group of students exists everywhere, and it's certainly not by any means, um, you know, it's a diverse group of students, so you can't really just put them all into one bucket. However, do you think that you're in a position in Texas because of what I just mentioned to kind of help accelerate this um, in other states with their policies as it pertains to supporting multilingual learners. I know that's kind of not in your plan right now, but I guess I'm just asking you to step outside of your what you're currently doing and think about that. Like, what effect do you think that this will have on other states if they're watching or listening to this or seeing it in any other way? Definitely. I mean, like you said, right now we're focused on on more of the Texas implementation side. We want to make sure we do it well, um, so that it can really serve as a model for other states. Honestly, that's the end goal. We're IDRA is a national organization, though our policy work tends to be Texas focused. We are um, throughout the US South. So we want to make sure, and, and as you know, people tend to think that emerging bilingual students only exist in the sort of areas that you mapped out, but we're, they're everywhere. And, and um, many of us are, are the fastest growing population here in, in our schools. So we want to make sure that throughout the South and throughout the country, um, we are able to advance this sort of national movement toward um, just reframing how we see emergent bilingual students. And part of that work is making sure that before I finish up my work here with a fellowship at IDRA, I leave some good model legislation um, and leave a, we, that we are documenting what we're doing well, um, documenting what can be improved upon, and, and leaving that out there as a resource for other advocates in other states who want to take advantage of that. Yeah. The big piece that we're, we're ensuring we're leaving is model legislation, um, because that's often, it's, it's difficult to re, have to invent that wheel. Um, and so that folks don't have to reinvent the wheel, we are going to leave that model legislation as a resource for folks who want to get connected um, and, and talk through the intricacies. As you said, uh, this is sort of a, a condensed version of what happened, but mm -hmm. it takes a lot of stakeholder work. It takes a lot of work with the education agency in the state, and it takes a lot of thinking and intentionality. And like you said, I think you put it well, you know, you have to think in the weeds with it because yep. 
of course we we run into the issue because I don't want to make it seem like this is all smooth sailing and um, is uncomplicated by any means, of course, um, with students who are in, for example, dual language immersion programs that are two way, um, we came up against the problem that technically, if folks wanted to label students who um, are speakers of English and are acquiring a second language, that they too would be considered emergent bilingual students, which is true. Um, and so maybe the idea is to move into a world beyond where we need this specific label for these students who are acquiring English as their second language in school, or maybe even a third language. Um, but we wanted to make sure that the Texas Education Agency was collecting that data still. Um, but it didn't need to be upfront and in the interactions between teachers and students, they're taking care of that on the back end um, and making sure that that does not get confused because that's really important. We want to make sure that those two data sets remain, that the integrity of that data remains the same and we need, we need that data. So there is a lot to work through and parse through um, before we can even reach this level, but we're excited that we've had strong partnerships that are willing to make it work. Yeah. And like you said, you have documentation that you can leave behind for others to follow. That's huge. I mean, that right there is, I mean, as you were speaking about all the work that you were doing, and again, you said it's a kind of a condensed, condensed version that you're giving us. I mean, I, I, I'm sure I don't speak for just myself when I think, wow, I don't know if I could, <laughs> I mean, I don't even know where it start, you know? So um, having that documented and being able to use uh, for other places, I think is going to be um, crucial. So obviously all this work is really done, you know, for the students. It's being done in the background. It's super important work. Um, and, and when it comes down to it, you know, I did a, a, a podcast episode with a woman by the name of Dr. Ayanna Cooper, who works um, on making sure that uh, multilingual learners um, are granted the civil rights that they deserve as, as students and as, as, as people who live in our country, basically. I'm curious about that. What, what do you hope to accomplish when it comes to protecting the civil rights of, of multilingual students? Because that's something that's been, um, it's, it's, it's been a bit contentious, I think, in some places. And I don't think many places even really are aware um, of that piece of it. Definitely. Um, and I think this is a timely question. Uh, this is the 40th, this year's the 40th anniversary of the landmark Castaneda versus Picard court case that, you, as you probably know, established, you know, what it meant for a bilingual program to actually meet the civil rights afforded to students um, that are in these classrooms. And so that's fundamental to IDRA's mission and vision. IDRA was founded by um, a Latino in, in San Antonio who was upset. Clearly, he was a former superintendent, and he um, saw that uh, he was actually at Edgewood ISD, which is one of the poorest school districts in the nation, not even just in Texas. And so he was, uh, you know, his issue with that had to do with fair funding um, and how this was unfair funding. And of course, uh, you can imagine that the students in this school district were predominantly um, Black and Latinx in San Antonio. So this has been the founding issue of, of IDRA focusing on civil rights. Um, from emergent bilingual students and, and all students and part of our um, equity assistance center work. So there are four equity assistance centers across the nation and IDRA houses the, I, the equity assistance center in the US South. Um, so we actually, as part of this work, um, advise school, schools and school districts on equity walks, how they can ensure that they're protecting the civil rights of students, not just emergent bilingual students, but ensuring that students of any 
national origin, of any race, of any gender, um, and, and those other protected statuses um, are actually being protected in schools. And so this is really just an extension and naturally flows out of that work because if these students are not receiving an equitable and excellent education um, at like some of their you know, non-emergent bilingual peers, then we have a civil rights issue. Um, so this is like part of a longer strategic game. <laughs> um, and it, it feels wrong to use the word game because obviously this is the education of over a million students in Texas and so many more students nationally. But at the end of the day, that's unfortunately how many of our legislators treat those, the education of, that, of those students. So we have to also think about it um, from the perspective of our, of our students and families, but how we can also be most effective policy-wise and ensuring that the policies we set forth are also in line with and protecting and expanding the civil rights of students. Yeah, again, I'm, I'm so impressed by just, you, you, have, you, you just don't seem to have, and I'm sure that things come up that you didn't think of, right? That's just the nature of this kind of work. But I mean, you really have, uh, have, have covered all of your bases with all of these pieces. And again, connecting what's happening on the ground with, the, with policy. I just feel like that seems so obvious, but in many cases, um, it, well-intentioned, but it uh, doesn't seem to work the way, the way it's supposed to. And again, hopefully this will become um, a blueprint for others. Um, I want to zoom in a little bit on something that we've, we've talked a little bit about in this conversation, but like you know, as someone who at a school level, um, as somebody who is a, a teacher or a student or an administrator, maybe they work in a district where, you know, they've always used the term EL or English learner or LEP or whatever the case may be. Um, and, or maybe that maybe there's a teacher who might be a, a newer teacher who again, hasn't worked with, uh, with multilingual learners before, and is now, um, you know, for the first time, uh, going to be, um, working with, with those students among other students. How do you think a name change that like initial name change, whether it's new to someone or it's their first time kind of coming across uh, a term that classifies a specific um, student, how might it spark changes like at the outset of a school year, for example, or in both in how we perceive and educate students um, and also in like you know in, in, in designing curriculum and thinking about day-to-day lessons? I mean, am I going? too far with this? Or do you think that it's really going to be the initial kind of push um, to help teachers who, who may be struggling with that uh, area? Definitely. I think, um, as you mentioned, no, I don't think, I think we should take it all the way far. I think I love this, uh, you know, sort of thinking because it's helpful for us. And we were um, very intentional in our thinking through it. We talked to several um, bilingual educators um, throughout this initiative before there was even a law written and then throughout the process of when we wrote the law and submitted it and we're pushing for it, we made sure that we were talking to educators, administrators, um, and students and families themselves. Those were the folks who are most important to us because like you said, those are the people who at the school level, at those like one-on-one -on -one interactions, we want to make sure that this doesn't just become another burdensome change um, that now they have to you know change all the paperwork, but <laughs> we wanted to make sure that they were also behind what we were trying to achieve with this name change. Um, and, and part of that has to do with, like we meant, like you, I think you really captured it well when you mentioned that many of these teachers are our allies, you know, it, and you cringe a little because they're like really amazing educators who have been able to, many of them take their students 
um, through high school graduation and, and help them acquire the English language. Mm-hmm. And then they say a, a term like LEP. Yeah. Or you know, the deficit thinking jumps out of that. And, and I, I'll speak from personal experience. I felt that a lot. Um, I went to a Title I school in Texas, which means everyone in my school qualified for free or reduced lunch. We were 99% Latinx students. And we even had Latinx teachers um, who sort of had this sort of idea. Like they wanted us to be successful, but they also, it felt like they were trying to almost shield us from some of the hurt or pain or racism and discrimination we would face out in the the world. When we left our, our high school that was very homogenous, uh, and they knew about that. And and in that sort of wanting to protect us from it and wanting us to be successful, they sort of inadvertently caused a little bit of harm, right? Mm-hmm. Well-intentioned, yep. Well-intentioned, but still deficit-based, right? right? They're still, you know, preparing us for this very deficit view that the world would have of us, um, which was, I think, important. But also we we are hoping that with this change, we, so, we spark the conversations that you and I are having now and that happened in your organization and happened in mine. We want, first of all, for there to be conversation about this. Like, let's interrogate why we always thought these terms were okay. Like, let's really discuss why English learner often hides or obscures more about students and their abilities than it tells us about students and their abilities. Well put. Um, And so those are the kinds of conversations that we want teachers and administrators to begin having amongst themselves, having with us, having with their students and families, um, in order for there to be a stronger mutual respect and trust that emerges from that between students and teachers. And this is not just between teachers and administrators, this has to happen with families and students as well. You know, in these conversations that I was having with having with people in my own community that reminded me of my own family, um, they would still have these sort of like, ideas that are now that I've learned there are myths about you know I don't want my child I stopped speaking Spanish to my child because I didn't want them to be confused in school Mm -hmm. or because I thought it was more important for them to learn English and so I curbed that learning in the home so that they could just focus on learning English and being successful so there is a lot of work to be done um, in our own communities and and a lot of myth busting that has to happen around those things Um, so this is really just the beginning of the, that more structural change that has to happen beginning with our students, families, teachers, and administrators at the school level. And, it, and the, the hope is that it will, you know, sort of re- usher in a world, an education world where students are encouraged to leverage all of their linguistic abilities in the classroom and, and at home, right? So we don't right. want it to just be in one setting. We want to we want them to le- leverage all of their linguistic capabilities and the social skills that come with those. Um, I sometimes feel like I have different social skills in both languages because the social norms are different in right. cultures that are tied to my languages. Um, and so we want students, and ultimately our vision is for classrooms to be places that invite students to bring in all of that information and all of those social skills and work with each other um, to have a more robust and diverse, really actually linguistically diverse classroom setting. Um, so that, that's the goal, right? <laughs> um, and, and we are working on it. And I think many folks are working very hard on this kind of thing and are excited about this change too. Yeah, thank you for that description. I'd encourage people to go back and listen to that whole thing again. There's not much I can do to encapsulate that whole thing because you did, <laughs> you did such a good job with it. But um, 
you know, I, I guess that I, I would mention only because, you know, in, in my work, I, I, what I get to do is not really be an expert on anything, but talk with a lot of experts about a lot of things, um, which, which I, I really enjoy doing. I'd like to think that I'm expert in something, but certainly not what you are. But what I'm hearing over and over again from people is um, this idea that we have to take this asset-based approach when it right away when it comes to um, and the first step I think is is what label you're going to you know give to a, a specific student and kind of um, what I've heard a lot of as well is you know when it comes to things like access to uh, rigorous coursework um, many emergent bilinguals are are not um, able to access that rigorous coursework which of course has a domino effect throughout their academic careers and could affect their professional uh, careers um, as well and often does. Um, and and I don't forget who I mentioned that that or who I spoke with that that used this term, but it was like the whole idea of what you're saying that we're trying to well-intentioned, trying to protect students. And and this person called it the like pobrecito syndrome, you know, like, like you know, I don't, I don't want to, I want to help you. I want to like hold you. But at some point, you know, at some point you have to, it's a really hard thing to do is what I'm trying to say. And I think the labels that folks use like little laps, I mean, it's such a like cutesy little term. And again, it could be a microaggression, I think as well that people don't know about, but that is a great example of a well-intentioned sort of protection mode um, over time doing more harm than good, like an overprotective parent or the bird that never lets their, you know, their, 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 their young bird fly out of the nest kind of thing. Right. Exactly. I think that that's huge. And I think <clears throat> that that even, I think the pobrecito syndrome is a perfect encapsulation of it. And, and we think that we're doing our students a service. Um, and I can definitely understand that. And, and of course, it stems from a place of um, love and care for students and wanting to protect them, wanting them to be successful. But it also affects because then it makes state legislators see us as pobrecitos. They're like, yes. oh, those poor students. Um, you know, it's enough that they just graduate. We really sh shouldn't bombard them with you know, expecting them to take rigorous coursework. And as we all know, students rise to meet those expectations as long as they're given the necessary resources to meet those mm -hmm. expectations. And so we also are working at IDRA to change this perception because our ultimate goal is that we want the legislature to allocate more funding. At the end of the day, many of the issues that, that keep our students from being able to achieve like their non-emergent bilingual counterparts has to do with the fact that the, the state is just not allocating the research-backed percentage of what it costs to ensure a, an equitable education for emergent bilingual students. And so our legislature meets every two years. And so this bill passed this year, maybe not next year, not maybe not the next session or the one after, will that funding change? But 10 years down the line, when we have been referring to students as emergent bilinguals and graduating more biliterate, more bilingual students as a cause, a causal effect of that, our state legislators will begin to see those students not as a monolithic and needy population to educate that's expensive, but rather an asset to our state and a necessary asset and that and one that they're willing to invest more in. And that's the goal with this. It's a long game, like I mentioned, it takes a while, but the, the important thing is that there are dedicated advocates who are going to continue pushing for it. Um, and we pushed for increased funding this, this session too. Of course, there's not always an appetite to expand that, but once we can prove and once we've changed minds um, that these 
students are not a drag on the Texas budget, but rather an asset that Texas has to be investing in because we can't afford not to at one in five of all Texas students and that's only growing. That's what we want the state to see. We can't afford not to invest in these students. They're an asset, we need them. Yep. And we, you know, we are only better as a state when our students are receiving an equitable education. Yeah, and you have to speak that language in policy, right? Like I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that because we, oftentimes, you know, this, this can, this podcast and everything, the people I speak with can be an echo chamber where, you know, you're, you're speaking with people who are working in schools and it's all about, oh, you know, it's, it's the love and the asset base and everything else. But really you have to get decision makers to understand that. And I love, I, I wrote it down. I hope I wrote it down. Right. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the terms you use, we have to go from looking at, or we have to get policymakers to go from looking at these students as monolithic and needy to a necessary asset. Is that what you said? That's right. <laughs> I love it. That's like, that says, that says it all. I mean, it really does. I, I, um, I barely read my own handwriting, but I'm glad I, I'm glad I picked that up. Okay. So as we wrap up here and there's, uh, there's, I mean, I feel like we could talk for hours here, but I don't know how many people have that kind of commute and they want to listen for that long. So uh, as we start to wrap up, um, I have to ask, well, there's, there's so many possibilities for names. I mean, Again, I, I spent uh, almost two years traveling around the country and working with districts um, to help them, uh, uh, you know, better run their their whatever EL programs. In most cases, is what it was called. So that being said, why emergent bilingual as opposed to multilingual learners or a myriad of other uh, labels that that have been used and that I've probably used just in this half an hour conversation today so far. Right. Yes, of course. We know that this question has to be asked and we ask this question of ourselves too. And ultimately, what I would have, my dream would have been for the state legislature to adopt the term emergent by slash multilingual. Yeah. Um, but that seemed like a big leap for them. And so just, I mean, the reason why we chose emergent bilingual and we were really thoughtful about choosing that is because unlike multilingual learner and like many other terms that exist out there, while they are like more, um, positive sounding, they might be, they might be misnomers. And I understand emergent bilingual might also be a misnomer for many students. They might be emergent trilinguals uh, or emergent, emergent multilinguals. Um, but the, the driving force behind it really was an article that has been foundational for me. Um, but the, the idea that emergent bilingual opposed and was coined by scholars who were actively seeking to establish an asset-based term for uh, for the students that we're re referring and discussing to discussing today. So while multilingual learner already existed as a as someone who spoke various languages, and that might be applicable to student students, emergent bilingual really came from a place, an intentional place of looking for asset-based languages as a retort and a response and a pushback to limited English proficient and English learner. And so that was what I was looking for because that's what we're doing here today. Because we we Though there might be more accurate terms for some of our students, we want to be open to that. Um, what we're looking for is really, and what we've talked about today, a, a shift in how we're thinking about students from deficit to asset. And that's where this term, emergent bilingual, was born. Um, in that shift, in a change, it's established by um, scholars who are well-respected and just mm -hmm. honestly legends <laughs> in yeah. the field of, of um, bilingual education. So. That's sort of where we came from. And, and I can add that resource for, for folks who want to read. Um, yeah, please do. We'll, we'll link it for sure. Um, 
and you know, hopefully that will that will help convince people who who aren't necessarily gets the term, but it's but it's the question I asked that is a valid one because it's the question people are asking everywhere. It's like, well, what's the right term, you know? And then with of course within a term, you have all kinds of subterms that that apply to some students and not others because, as you said, this is not a monolithic group. Um, okay, well that's valuable, that's helpful, um, and and we will link to uh, that. I'm sure a lot of other resources that uh, that you mentioned or that are important to you, and. Speaking of resources, I want to ask you, I have two more questions for you. And the, and the second to last one is one that I ask everybody that comes on. Um, and that is if there is a book or another resource, and it can really be anything, um, that has either influenced you personally or professionally or both that you'd like to share with the audience. Definitely. I, I think that this article was really, um, I'll, I'll share a couple. So one that's directly related to this work, the name of the article that I've been referencing is called From English Language Learners to Emergent Bilinguals. Um, and it's by Dr. Ophelia Garcia, um, Dr. Klifkin, and Dr. Fauci. And so we can link to that. But that was specifically where they name why they are using this new term, why they're ushering it in, why we need it. Um, and, and I think was very convincing for me, as you can see, um, and for our organization. Um, but I will also name just in general for when we're thinking about these students, um, it's a book by Dr. Angela Valenzuela called Subtractive Schooling. Mm -hmm. I'm sure many of the folks on this um, call or listening in will be familiar with it, but it really was transformative for me to read it. It's been a center to all of the work that I've done. Um, in, in this fellowship that's focused on immigrant students and emergent bilingual students. Um, but also, you know, she gave me the terminology to describe things that I experienced in my own schooling, um, gave me, and those, and like, the, this is why terms and language are so important because when she named those experiences and gave them a term, when I read that term in her book and things like authentic caring and why those things don't translate from teachers to students, it was really changing for me. Uh, and I, I could begin to fight to dismantle unauthentic caring. Um, and I had a name for it. And, and I think that that's where this sort of stems from, this push to ensure that naming and language is accurate and reflective and asset-based comes from. Because when we accurately name things um, as what they are, <laughs> um, whether that's good or bad, we can begin to better understand mm -hmm. them and support or fight against them. Right. Yeah, and I love how that uh, that sort of little um, example you gave both was was personal and professional. You know, it's it's allowed you to kind of understand your own um, maybe challenges or not necessarily challenges, but confusion maybe at a certain time in your life to to being able to use it now to do the work that you are doing, which you're clearly very passionate about. Um, so we will link to those two as well. And then one more question, and that's um, you've mentioned your organization IDRA a few times, and I'd love to know how people can. Um, learn more about the work that you're doing or get in touch or learn more? Of course. So would love for folks to visit our website. It's www.idra.org. And that's idra.org. Um, there you can find information about our policy work, our community engagement work, how you can get involved if you want to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date um, on all things IDRA and education policy throughout Texas and the U.S. South. Um, in addition, you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at IDRAEDU. Um, and also we have a fellow specific account on Twitter um, where you might find more memes <laughs> than on our <laughs> official account. Um, it's run by uh, 
my colleagues, um, the other education fellows who focus on things like access to higher education, digital equity, and recently um, uh, equitable response to COVID-19. So it's a group of us who are working on those issues and you can follow us at IDRA EDU fellows on Twitter. Perfect. And if your colleagues are anything like you are, um, I'm sure that uh, that listeners will agree that um, that there's probably a lot that that you could learn from visiting all of those resources. I've looked at most of them, um, and and there's an incredible amount of 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 resources there. So, um, with that, Araceli Garcia, it has been a pleasure chatting with you. Um, you're clearly very passionate about this work, um, and not only you're very passionate, but as I mentioned, you're very uh, clearly detail oriented in a in a place in a position where you need to be very detail oriented. It seems like you have thought of everything, and if you haven't thought of everything, you're willing to take the challenge of dealing with the thing that you didn't necessarily plan for, which is uh, one of the keys to success in in any area. So I applaud the work that you're doing. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Um, and I look forward to, to collaborating more in the future. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all of these really insightful questions. I um, welcome anyone who wants to reach out. And of course, the continued partnership and dialogue about all of these issues. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.